For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteous and justice from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Prince of peace. This is one of the magnificent names given to Jesus in Scripture. The Messiah, and as we saw last week, the hope of the world. He was the Savior that the Old Testament prophets spoke about, and He was the ruler that Israel awaited. And these names and titles given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 and elsewhere throughout Scripture are not just names and titles attached to God's Son. They are descriptive of what God actually does. You see, we we don't just celebrate and proclaim the arrival of the King of Kings. Although His presence does demand and deserve our celebration and praise. But we serve a God who has acted throughout history, and He continues to act even today. I'm not trying to be facetious with this uh, point, but I'm just trying to illustrate a point. Today, a man or woman does not actually have to act like a man or act like a woman to receive the title Mr. Or Mrs. The President of the United States doesn't even have to act like the President to receive the title President. He or she simply has to win the presidential election. But God does not take titles and names in the Bible flippantly. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is a peacemaker. God is a peacemaking God. But he actually follows through and provides peace. And it's this morning, uh, our focus is God's provision of peace for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And this morning, I hope we'll see from God's word that Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that Ephesians uh, was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus, and it is within the context of salvation by God's grace and new life in Christ that this particular passage was written in Ephesians chapter 2. And more specifically in the previous verses, verses 11 through 13, a contrast has been set up between two people groups, Jews and Gentiles. 
between those that had received the Old Testament revelation, the Old Testament promises of God in the Scripture, and those that in verse 12 were described as separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. So let's look together at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And I want to warn you, we will move rather quickly this morning for the sake of time. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And pray with me before we begin. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time to look at it. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would speak through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2. Actually, let's begin in verse 13 just to set the context. But this is what Scripture says. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, and that's describing the Gentiles, uh, they were outside of the covenant that God had made with Israel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in the one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now I know a a reasonable response uh, on a Sunday morning in December uh, might be, why this passage? Um, Doesn't this passage talk much more about the death of Christ and the birth of Christ? After all, in the season of Advent, we are... We're anticipating and celebrating the coming of the Messiah into the world. But I think it's precisely for that reason that God came to us in the flesh. And yes, this passage does deal more with the death of Christ and the implications of it for believers. But as we look at it for the next few minutes, I want you to think of it and to look at it and to listen to it in that light. That God came to us in the flesh so that he would eventually go to the cross, therefore bringing peace to those who trust in him. And I already mentioned that Christ is our peace, but we will see specifically two different ways in which Christ is our peace this morning. Number one is Christ is our peace with one another. Christ is our peace with one another. Another. Look back at verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace. Now, this is emphatic. We don't talk like this very often. We don't say, He himself. The reason this is included here and, and written in this way is because Greek, the original language of the New Testament, is very similar to a number of languages uh, that are used around the world today, like Spanish, like French, where you don't actually have to include the pronoun to know what the subject of the verb is. Because the spelling or the parsing, the pointing of the verb, declares what the subject is. Now, we don't, we don't speak like that in English, uh, at least not to the extent that they do in a number of languages, but, but the pronoun is included here, and I think it's in- included because Paul, the author, and ultimately God, the author of Scripture, doesn't want us to miss it. He himself, don't miss it. Jesus, no one else, nothing else, is our peace. 
And then it says, who has made the two one? And the question then is what? The two what? That should be a reasonable response. The two what become one? And this is descriptive of two people groups. And we see that from this context. It's the Jews, the people of God, the ones that had received the Old Testament scriptures, and Gentiles, those that at that time were outside of the covenant with God. And then it says that he has made those two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now this is not how you would describe the relationship between two friends. Jews and Gentiles, their relationship is described here as being separated by a barrier, a dividing wall of hostility. This is not even how you would describe the relationship between two siblings that bicker all the time. You know, as a child, I, I, one of my favorite uh, cartoons, Saturday morning cartoons to watch was Tom and Jerry. And many, maybe all of you are familiar with Tom and Jerry, <clears throat> but in that story, that recurring story, episode after episode, Tom the house cat makes it his aim to catch and to kill his enemy, Jerry the mouse. And he never succeeds. He never fully succeeds because he's always outwitted by Jerry. And if he succeeded, the show would cease to exist. Uh, so he, he never caught Jerry. But as hostile as that relationship is or was between Tom and Jerry, it is still not the way that the relationship here between Jews and Gentiles is described. Because they were separated by a barrier, a partition, a dividing wall. In other words, they didn't even associate with one another. They stayed away from each other. And that separation grew out of Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. You see... Jews that practiced the law, that were faithful to the Old Testament law, stood out among their neighbors. And if you don't believe me, take a quick stroll through the Old Testament. Let's say uh, Leviticus, and you will see that if you did all those things, you would stand out among your friends as well. They stood out, and they interpreted the law, the Mosaic law, the law that God had given to Moses for his people, the Israelites, uh, in such a way as to barricade Gentiles, pagan nations, from receiving access to God through the Scriptures. They took prohibitions that God had written in the Old Testament Scriptures uh, in order to safeguard or to protect the Israelites from pagan influences, from chasing after false gods, such as prohibitions not to marry foreigners. The, uh, the Jewish uh, interpreters took those sorts of prohibitions and then mixed those with sinful hearts of men and women and they completely closed themselves off from Gentiles, from foreigners, from pagans. And so pagans were described as here in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 as excluded from citizenship in Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Now here when, when Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 15 that Christ has torn down this barrier. 
this wall, this partition, this separation between Jews and Gentiles. It says that he did so, verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now this is not saying that we as believers throw out the Old Testament scriptures. The Bible is not teaching that. After all, Jesus said, I have not come to do away with the the Old Testament Scriptures, but I've come to fulfill it, to fulfill the Old Testament law. So what is being said here? What is being communicated here? And this is important because uh, it ties directly to the way that we understand and study and proclaim and read Scripture today, and it's this. It's that through Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross, the law has been rendered powerless to condemn believers. The law has been rendered powerless to condemn believers. You see, the law served to reveal our sin, to show us the depths of our sin, because none of us, no human being, has ever been able to follow the law fully. But in Christ, we are fully forgiven. But as Christians today, we don't don't ignore that part of Scripture because we learn a great deal from it. We learn things about the nature of God, and we we learn things about the nature of mankind. But we no longer use the Old Testament Mosaic law as a pattern of behavior that rules over our lives. Instead, we interpret it through the filter of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as one New Testament scholar has put it. Now, we can say a whole lot more about our connection to the Old Testament, our relationship with it, but that's not uh, our primary purpose this morning. Uh, Moving on to verse 15, the last part of verse 15. It says, his purpose, this is Christ, was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So basically what's been said so far is Christ came. He himself is our peace. He destroyed this barrier, this partition, this separation between two people groups, Jews and Gentiles. And instead, he creates one new race, one new people group, believers in him. The bond, the link the connection, the commonality that we have with other believers, both in this room and across the world, far supersedes any differences that we might have. Even differences that before salvation in Christ might have caused hostility, might have caused separation, might have caused pride, and might have caused hatred. The link between believers and Jesus Christ extends beyond racial and ethnic barriers, beyond economic differences, past geographical locations, around language barriers, and across the age spectrum. And there is perhaps no greater time of the year that we we can come together and realize this than during Christmas, as we celebrate Christmas. And it's during this time of the year that when we look at passages like this and we see the gospel of Christ uh, for Jews and Gentiles, that that we need to be reminded in the middle of uh, the Christmas season, the holiday season, when we are bombarded with all sorts of messages uh, 
from the world's perspective and from our culture's perspective on Christmas, that Christmas is a time that we celebrate God coming to us in the flesh and tearing down any barriers with other people across this world. It's a time that we unite in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we, reconcile, that we recognize that through the gospel, we have peace with other believers. We're reminded that the God that we serve, the God that came to us, is the God of the nations, of all people groups. Now, ultimately, the incarnation, God coming to us in the flesh, as incredible and as mind-boggling as that is, that is not ultimately what saves us. It is the sacrificial death of the sinless Son of God that provides the atonement, that provides the forgiveness for our sin. And it's in verse 16 that the cross is mentioned. And that we see that, this, that Christ being our peace moves beyond just this horizontal component of peace among believers. But it also extends, perhaps more importantly, uh, to our relationship with our creator. A vertical component to our peace. We saw in verses 14 and 15 that Christ is our peace with one another. And in verses 16 through 18 we see that Christ is our peace with God. Look back at verse 16. It says, and in this one body, talking about the church, the body of believers, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. It is through the cross that we have been reconciled to God. To be reconciled means to be brought into agreement, to be in right relationship with our Creator. And that's what's taken place for those who, that have recognized their sin and trusted in the God of Scripture, the God that has come to us, the God that has become sin for us so that we might be sinless in the eyes of God. We have gone from a hostile relationship with our Creator in failure to uphold the letter of the law to a right relationship with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the incredible news is that God, even though he knew that we would turn our backs on him, that we would rebel against him, that our pride would overtake us, and that we would reject God and disobey God and be unfaithful to him, even though he knew that's how we would respond, he pre-planned to come to us to provide a way of salvation. And he chose to do so through the incarnation, becoming a baby, the creator becoming a creature in the form of a baby, all for the purpose of going to the cross so that you and so that I could have right relationship, salvation, lasting peace with our Creator. In verse 17, it says that Christ proclaimed peace to, to you who were far away. That's, that's us, Gentiles, and to those that were near, those that had received the Scriptures. This reminds us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. Now, it will not be realized by, and it will not be applied to all people. The Bible does not teach universal salvation. 
But it is available through the cross of Christ to all who trust in Christ for salvation. And the incredible thing is that God has chosen us to be the agents of proclaiming that message. How beautiful are the feet of those that proclaim the gospel of peace. And in verse 18, we see the proof of this peace with God. It says, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. The proof that we have been made right with our Creator is that we can boldly approach him without condemnation, knowing that he has forgiven us and knowing that he desires to to speak to us and to hear from us and, and to have intimate fellowship with us. And whether we realize it or not, This is our greatest good and delight, enjoying right relationship with him forever. So as we continue in the Christmas celebration, putting up Christmas decorations, singing Christmas songs, attending work, class, and school parties, let us not forget that God desires us to experience the lasting peace and salvation made available through Jesus Christ this December. Those of us that have experienced this peace are commanded from God's word to let this peace of Christ rule in our hearts since as members of one body we were called to peace and be thankful What an incredible blessing it is that we can be right with our Creator. There may be some here today that perhaps you have celebrated Christmas for years. Maybe you can quote the Nativity story. Maybe you have even served year after year in your church. But the Bible doesn't teach that any of those things bring us salvation or lasting peace. Maybe you realize this morning that that you've never experienced that peace that's made available to us with other believers and ultimately with God, that fellowship, that forgiveness. And if that's you, I urge you to cry out to God today in your sin, trusting in him for salvation and eternal life. May today be a day of reconciliation and peace. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you once again this morning thanking you for meeting with us today, being with us today, and giving us reason to sing, giving us reason to celebrate. But we thank you that you not only are the Prince of Peace, but you are our peace. Lord, remind us of that. Remind us of that as we stand and sing. Remind us of that as we leave this place, as we join others around the table. Lord, as we, as we work throughout this week, as we go from class to class. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives and may you, may you remind us of who we are in you and how that affects everything that we do. May you receive all the glory and all the praise from us this morning and throughout this season of Advent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.